So welcome tonight to TVT, Tarbut Vitora. It's a pleasure to have you all here. Dr. Korsim was part of our Yom Hazikaron Tekas, and we gave her the day off today as, uh, as our lower, middle, and upper school ran through about 25 different stations relating to Israel. That was happening in the other room, so they're cleaning that up. That's why we're here in the library today. And I'm going to call forward, actually, my colleague, Rabbi Micah Hyman, to do our introduction tonight. Rabbi Micah Hyman is the head of our Amsterdam Advanced Institute of Jewish Studies here at Arbut Vitora. He came on board this past year, and he is in charge of also our I Engage program, which some of you are here tonight as part of that program. And, uh, and Dr. Korzim has is, is, is part of that series being our kind of a keynote lecture in that series. So I'm going to leave it to Rabbi Hyman to make our introductory remarks tonight. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, uh, Rabbi Light. Yom Atzma'ut Sameach, these final hours of our independence. Etzem Atzma'ut Atzma'ai, Etzem Atzma'ai. It's in my bones. We feel it. We feel connected to Israel, and there's no greater way for us to connect back to Eretz Kodshenu, to Eretz Israel, than with Dr. Korzin, Rachel, not Rachel, as she noted so well. Uh, Rachel, uh, Rachel the poet, Rachel the teacher, a PhD from University of Haifa, worked uh, for many years with Jaffe Jewish Education here uh, in the diaspora, both in Canada and America. I knew her and know her from the Hartman Fellowship I was fortunate to learn with her for several summers. Uh, Rachel, when you say it's poetry and the sheer of Israel, the song of Israel, it's just part of who you are and what you do is give us the opportunity not only to feel connected but to feel the bones of, of our literature, the bones and the history. Every word has a story. Maybe it's a gun to say it's a it's a simple story, which means it's not so simple, but it's deep. It's deep. And Corazine, even hearing from your last name that that is a story in it of itself. I think of well, but for other times it is such a great honor both to have CSP, the community scholars program, come together with this I engage. A program that we've uh, shared over the last of weeks, and to have you as this capstone. This is really a great kind of late mint service, our sheet, so to speak, of your Atma'ut. So, without further ado, we give you uh, Dr. Rachel Korazin. Many, many years ago, when I was actually high in Montreal, Canada, which is also America, by the way. As the Canadians. <laughs> I, it was the 80s, and some of you do remember the 80s. No cell phones, no internet, no, none of that. The disconnect from home was terrible. And then you, you remember the time when we had to think twice before we picked up the phone to call mom back in Israel? And then it was so expensive that we went like, and that was then because it was. So. Among other things that I was missing was the day-to-day -day connection with Israeli literature. And 
I can make a case for the 80s. I could make a case for every decade. Just an introduction. We are into the topic already. But the 80s, if I want to say it simply, is when we all discovered together that there is more to Israeli literature than Emsos and Amichai. Okay? Like many new writers. David Grossman starts in the 80s. The Meir Shalev starts in the 80s. Savion Libre starts in the 80s, etc., etc. So I write a letter to my friends back home. Let me remind you, write a letter. Paper, pen, envelope, stamp, one week, at least. And if I'm lucky and they respond in the same day, and who does? Then I will get an answer in two weeks, and I'm happy because none of us knows anything better is coming. And I say to my friends, please, you know, if you see something new that you know will interest me, will you buy and mail me, and then I'll pay you when I come back. Okay, so don't worry about pay, we'll mail. Mail, now it's a book, it's heavy, we don't do airplane, we do boat. It's no big deal. Nobody knows that there are going to be something quicker, right? And then I start the circle of reading modern Israeli literature because all my Israeli right? she's got the new books from Israel. So will you do a reading book for us? Yeah, of course I will, and you are taking the book club, right? Don't. Because in a book club, everybody has their copy, and we had one copy, and they haven't come around to inventing photocopying machines yet. I'm going to do something, and if you smile, I will know how old you are, so keep your smile. That is how we do topic. <laughs> I told you not to. Now I know how old you are. Soon enough, my non-Israeli friends asked me, Rachel, will you do one for us? I said, I'd love to. We don't have translations. Because no publisher would publish in the 80s anything Israeli that wasn't Amos Oz and Amichai, you know? So we did homemade that we studied. It was one of my students in those groups that came up to me one day and said, Rachel, you cannot believe what reading this Israeli literature is doing to us. And I, you know, the Israeli not so well educated and a little bit bloody. And I go, well, I grew up with this poetry, so what's the big excitement? No, 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 you don't get it. How do we, Montreal Jews, get to learn about Israel? So there are three values. Israel from the pulpit. Excuse me, Rabbi. Very interesting, not very contemporary. You know, comes Parashat Lech Lecha, whatever, so the Rabbi will do, but then there is Israel of fundraising, you know about that. <laughs> the more miserable we look, the better it is for the cause. <laughs> and then there is Israel of the media. And that has not changed. Two venues for us to get into the media. Either we shoot them or they shoot us. There would be no other reason for the media to deal with Israel. Now says the woman to me, by reading Israeli literature with us, it's as if you have invited us into your living room. And let us listen to the intimate Israeli discourse, the stuff that you guys say to each other when we are not listening, we being diaspora Jews. That's the deal. It's an invitation to our living rooms. The stuff that we say to each other in Hebrew, and don't really translate everything for you. They'll show you stuff that does not have official translations that I have done for my sessions. Okay? I have created since the 80s over 40 different sessions that take different aspects. 
aspects of life in Israel and will collect literature around a particular topic, hopefully trying to confuse you by having conflicting voices because I enjoy confusing you. I'll do it today. This is one of my earliest ones. I called it Connections to the Land. So before we go to the confusing voices of contemporary Israeli literature, let's check how well you know the classical middle of the road narrative of our connections to the land. I'll give you the one minute version. You know it. Many, 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 many years ago, we lived happily in our country, which God gave us, right? Told us to go there. What do you mean? I'm just checking. We had the forefathers and the mothers and the judges and the prophets and the kings. It was fine. Then came Titus. Kicked us all out. We went, he also burned down our temple. Remember that. And then we went to exile. And we wept, 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 and suffered, suffered, suffered. And all the time we wanted to go back to the country, right? Ah. While we were busy weeping, waiting, praying, our country lay barren and was weeping, waiting for us, right? And it hurts up. And if you look around, everybody has have their own country, passport, flag, whatever. We should have two less books. We all followed Herzl, arrived to the land, fell on our banded knees, click it to the ground, and we love it ever since. Every single line of this story that we all know by heart can be challenged. Even Herzl didn't follow Herzl. He stayed in Vienna. <laughs> he never made Aliyah. I mean, what are we talking about? This is the session about the, oh yeah? Challenging that basic narrative that we know so well. Showing that it's not that easy to be connected to the land of Israel all the time. Together? Let's go. You have all your texts, your handouts. Now, we are going to do a lot of poetry and some prose. So while we do that, let me check with you. And I need for you to be as honest as you can or willing. How many of you truly, truly hated literature back in school and college? Like that moment, that moment when the teacher went, what did the poet mean? Okay, here is my solemn commitment to you. It's not going to be like that. I don't know if you love it, but it's going to be different. Okay? We're starting on the first page with Yehuda Amchai, a poem coming from a book that he had published in the mid-80s called Poems of Jerusalem. And quickly running you through Amichai, just in case. There used to be a time when I assumed everybody knew who Amichai was. I learned better. So I know you do, but then somebody at the back of the room doesn't. Born in the year 1924 in Germany to an Orthodox observant family, the family makes Aliyah to the land of Israel, not yet dated, in 1936, and our inner collective memory clock now is chiming in time, right? 1936, in time. Oh, oh. Yeah, oh, oh, I just joined you in a collective inner clock, okay, inner diary. Amichai, like many a child of immigrants, 
will want to out Israeli every Israeli and to out Sabra every Sabra. So off goes the Kippah, off goes the German name, off goes observance, and he will become your Palmachnik, your fighter, fighting the war of independence. Start writing and publishing around that time. First book appeared in 1962. It has the absolutely amazing original name. Poems. <laughs> 1942-2668. He published in newspapers and journals before, but the first book. This is from 85, and I use it normally as the beginning of the conversation about our collection to connection to the end. For the purpose of the exercise, I would like to have two people who are ready to have a conversation with me. One of them needs to be a fluent Hebrew speaker. I will ask them a question, and I need a simple yes or no answer. So it cannot be a rabbi. <laughs> because their training does not include that capacity. <laughs> the other person, I will need somebody who is comfortable in the Jewish way of life. I'm not asking like knowledgeable of any Gemara by heart, but just comfortable, but has no Hebrew. Can I have my Hebrew speaker in the room who is ready to give me a simple yes or no answer to a simple question? Anybody? I'll give you my friends if there is nobody else because I know you have a fluent Hebrew. Do you consider you have a fluent Hebrew? I also consider myself a I know. Let's challenge that. Let's challenge that. No. Okay. Okay. Question. I'm inviting you to read Hebrew title of the poem in Hebrew to yourself. And I'm asking you to read the English translation of Hannah Bloch from Berkeley, not so far away from here. And I'm asking you the simple question, is this a correct translation? Hebrew, English, from the Songs of Zion the Beautiful. Is this a correct translation? No, he did it. It is not. It is not. You don't know how many times I had. Well, it depends. Are you rich? Now I need a person who is comfortable in the Jewish way of life, but has no Hebrew. And you do it. And no Hebrew. No Hebrew. You have Hebrew. You don't have any Hebrew. But I'm not religious. It said comfortable in the Jewish way of life. Is that like open enough? Yes. Been a few times to synagogue, but they there occasionally, maybe not the whole book, but at least up till dinner, you know? That kind of person. Yeah. Like me. And I'm a poet, is that you? Okay. So your name, ma'am? Robbie. Robbie? Okay, Robbie. Here's the deal. I'm going to read the Hebrew title to you. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Does it ring a bell? I'd like you please to remember that I'm a fluent Hebrew speaker. Therefore, you didn't need to struggle to translate it from me. I know the translation. All I need is your response to the sound of the title of the poem. Is that a good deal? Can we do that? I thank you. I'll read the Hebrew to you. Does it ring a bell? What does it sound like? Eretz 
Zion Yerushalayim. Anybody? No, don't translate. Just the sound. Does it remind you of anything? Yes, but I can't remember. You can't remember. You know what you bring me to do? I have to sing, and I cannot carry a tune if my life depended on it. Here it is in singing. Israel's national anthem. Amichai, from the title, is telling his readership in Hebrew, in Hebrew I'm going to have a conversation with the national anthem. I may even mess with the national anthem. Now look at the translation of Hannah Bloch from Berkeley. What has she done for the American reader? Same page, same page. America the Beautiful. She had done a cultural adaptation. Isn't that beautiful? It's poetry in itself. She's creating the same kind of feeling for the American reader as Amichai had done for the Israeli reader. Don't work for Australians, let me tell you. I have tried. Not even across the border to the north. But it does here. We are going to mess with this national. I want for you, just for this one poem, to do, to be patient until I read or recite it to you in Hebrew. So at least on this occasion of your Matzmaut, we will hear one Israeli poem in the original. ולצורך Jerusalem is a place where everyone remembers it's forgotten something but doesn't remember what it is. Now, do you need Bobby and everybody else to be a biblical scholar in order to pick up on the notion that if a Jewish Hebrew writer is putting the first three lines of his poem in the sonnet, the first stanza, count until 14, you can do that. Okay? He puts in the first three lines, Yerushalayim, Remembering, forgetting. Could you pick up on the notion that the man may be making an allusion to a text slightly earlier than his? Which one would that be? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, and in that quote, let me remind you, Psalms. We have committed that God forbid we should forget Jerusalem, let our tongue dry and our arms fall out, and horrible stuff! And here comes Yehuda Amichai, who was the end of the 20th century, 3,000 years after King David, who, according to our tradition, had composed Psalms. But I'm not so sure anymore. Yeah! We come to the city, look around, now this feeling of I ought to feel something, not happening. I know, I should remember. I have no idea what. You're actually falling 
with sounds, which is not very respectful. But why not? Exactly, we are Jews. We are allowed to, to have a discussion with that. This is what we do as Jews. And now I'm asking you, who is Amichai talking about? Who are those people who, when they come to Yerushalayim, look around, have a sense of maybe deja vu, but cannot connect it to anything? The memory doesn't come. I, yeah, it had those words, but I don't remember what it is. Who is Amichai talking about? Okay. About tourists. They ask for juice. How they love you. Normally it takes me a good five minutes to pull this out. But you were quick. I so love the sense of Israeli poet criticizing the diaspora Jews. No way. Read the next line, will you? And for the sake of remembering, I wear my father's face over mine. Amichai is talking about himself, who lived smack in the middle of Yerushalayim, who had fought in all the wars, pays his taxes, speaks fluent Hebrew, even has Orthodox upbringing. And he will say, I need to do something for better remembering. How many Hebrew speakers in the room quickly show hands, or students of Hebrew? Note the grammatical form in the Hebrew. It's hard work of remembering. Amichai doesn't say, remind me quickly, and he'll say Lizkor. He doesn't say Lizkor. He says, hard work. And now he says, in order to get this city, I need to wear my father's face over mine. I need to see through his eyes. I need to smell. I need to touch. Hey. Amichai's father was a diaspora Jew. Amichai is practically a Sabra. Lives in Yerushalayim. Why is he making this request? Why does he feel that he needs his father's eyes, spectacles, whatever feeling, smell, to better understand Yerushalayim? What could a diaspora Jew possibly have over us Israelis? Yes, ma'am, at the back. Yearning. The diaspora Jews have were yearning and we take it for granted. We rush from the supermarket to pick up our kids at kindergarten, we pay our taxes, even we don't reserve duty, but we don't really stop to think about the meaning. And the diaspora Jews, they haven't lost it. They have a better understanding than we do. Us Israelis who need to wear our father's face over ours because they were all diaspora Jews. Now, there are a few Israelis in the room, I know at least I'm sure about two, there may be others. How popular the statement would make Amichai in Israel? <laughs> Not very. He's telling Israelis in Hebrew that his father's exile, Gala-like Jew, has something over us? What a chutzpah. So the first thing, if you ever are learning Amichai for the first time, that you learn about Amichai that he really doesn't care about popularity. <laughs> he cares about expressing a notion. Now, as a good Jewish educator, which I hope I am, I need now to pull on you the most effective tool of Jewish education, and that would be guilt. Thank you very much. 
And now I need for you to feel guilty, but I will show you how much is lost in translation. So by next time I come, we can do this in Ivrit. Look at the Hebrew for me. I wear my father's, but there is a choice of a particular verb. Now, the English language, of which I am not a perfect master, but doing fine. To the best of my knowledge, you guys wear your socks, your shoes, your slacks, your hats, your glasses, your jewelry, and even your perfume, right? In Hebrew, that's the language. You wear your socks, noel your shoes, Chovesh your slack, chovesh your kova, markiv your glasses, ode your jewelry, and we do not have your perfume, so because Yiddish is always there. <laughs> Yiddish is always there. Now, Amchai needs to put something on his body for which there is no verb, because normal people, but Amichai, do not wear faces. So he's looking at the whole plethora of available verbs for him, and he chooses the verb chovesh, which is the verb you use, you're all doing it, to cover your head. Could Amitai be by now, secular Israelis suggest, the first thing to do if you want to really connect to Jerusalem is connect to that chovesh, do Jewish man, cover your head. Same root, for Chovesh, three letters. All Israeli words will have a root, most of them three. There are exceptions. We are not in that grammar class right now. How many of you have traveled in Israel at the time we still need to have paramedics on the bus? You call a paramedic, Chovesh. The verb will serve for dressing a wound, for healing. How many of you ever read Bialik? Not one, just me. Once long ago, Hamid, the student of Yeshiva, Hoveshets of Salebe Hamidrash, dresses the benches of Yeshiva. Hovesh. How many of you have read Jeremiah? committed to prison. The Hebrew verb that Amichai had chosen carries the meaning of doing Jewish, healing, studying, and being committed. This is what the Hebrew does for you when you read that line. You have I wear my father's face. Thank you very much. <laughs> we'll continue in the English. By the way, a I wear my father's face over my face in English, like facade in Latin outside. Panim in Hebrew, like Panim inside. The Hebrew language recognizes that your face is a mere reflection of your inside. You don't even have that in English. What shall I do with you guys? As soon as you have done the right thing, how can I teach you Hebrew poetry in English? I can. As soon as you have done that thing, there is a moment of realization. I get it. 
This is the city where my dream containers fill up like divers' oxygen tanks. You know, you need to know how much I need this city? I'll tell you. As much as a diver would need to carry those tanks, schlep them underwater. This is how much I need this city. How many scuba divers in the room? Not one will have to trust me. What do scuba divers carry in their tanks? No, you cannot breathe oxygen. How many doctors in the room? You cannot breathe oxygen. You breathe air. Oxygen is the stuff they give you in hospital if your breathing is not good enough to enrich a little bit. Amchai made a mistake. He doesn't know about scuba diving. The next confession. Over, hmm, I'm if I died a thousand, I'm going to say 20 years ago. It came to read some of his poetry to us at the place where I used to work for Jaffe for the Jewish Agency uh, for Israel in Kiryat Moriah in Jerusalem. He read another poem. Then we had a Q&A. And I, the idiot, I repeat, I, the idiot, went up to the man and said, Mr. Amichai, in that other poem about Jerusalem, I, I did that. I mean, would I, be, would I invent this? In the other poem about Yerushalayim, you made a mistake. It's not oxygen, it's compressed air. Man looks at me pitifully, which is exactly what I deserved, and says to me, like, who cares? <laughs> it's so much more beautiful like that. And it sent me back to the Hebrew in the poem to understand what he meant. You know what diverse oxygen can sound like in Hebrew? oxygen, divers, who dive. He wanted the cellule sound, which means the root again, sadik lamid lamid. sound. Litzlol, go deep, and tzlul, see through, like in that other song, avirarim tzlul kayayim, transparent. And I wanted him to say avir dachus, compressed air. Like, how stupid can you be? How stupid can you be? It's not Amichai. I use my private moment, the one given to me in life for that. You can be stupid when you are younger. As soon as we reach, like we had the wow moment, I get it. I know how I need the city. You have classical Amichai sense, but also classical literature thing. 30 seconds for the ones who hate literature. Please do not listen because it's, it's one of those things, okay? When you do a sonnet, you remember, you reach the middle, the mood will change. And Amichai does that. We are done. We are back to our reading. <laughs> After the moment of had we been Christian, would we say epiphany? He will stand aside, excuse me. I'll yell so you can hear me. He just said, wow, and he did like, yeah. Because his holiness sometimes turns into love. Like, what? I mean, he, he, he already brings in a, a, a bit of irony. 
a bit of doubt. Because if it's holiness sometimes turns into love, then there are all those other times. And therefore, it's holiness sometimes to turn into hatred, indifference, anger, fun, whatever. Okay, suddenly opening gate, and he starts 30 years ago a conversation that we think we invented last week. I know the city is holy. Don't give me that talk of not being loyal, of not understanding. I know. I'm telling you, it's holiness. I live here. Does that mean that I need to love every single thing that happens there? No. Holiness sometimes turns into love. And sometimes it does not. Amichai is opening a door to the more complex relationship with the land. To the need to say, if you belong to the crowd, if you are committed, if you wear your father's faith with yours, you know it's holy. You're a member of the family. The family will talk honestly. And when I don't like something, I will let you know. And the questions that are asked in those hills are the same as they have always been. Have you seen my sheep? Have you seen my shepherd? And sheep and shepherd have at least three levels of reading. And in Yerushalayim, especially 30 years ago, but occasionally even now, you will have a wandering Bedouin shepherd coming to Mount Zion or whatever. And, and then so shepherd and goat can be like, your, or sheep can be a very earthy, smelly, baba thing. But Shepherd and sheep can be also a metaphor for leadership and the people. And therefore, the questions that are asked in those hills are the same as they have always been. Hey, man up there whom we have elected, do you still see us? And the guy sitting there could be looking, hey, are you still with me? And also, sheep and shepherd would be the ultimate metaphor of God and us, his people. And the question is still relevant. Are we still turning to him? Does he still see us? Questions are always there. We come to the last closing lines of this poem, and the doors of my home stay open like a tomb where someone has, was resurrected. Very complicated. I never could figure why would a man want to equate his home to a tomb. I can offer you a Zionist reading that says that the mere fact that I have a house in Jerusalem and door is open, is already the beginning of the better days of the future of Geula. But I want to draw your attention to something very, very interesting here. And those of you who do not have Hebrew, you'll have to trust me or your neighbor to have Hebrew. Look at the Hebrew. Plural. English. Someone was resurrected. Singular. The plural reading of resurrection and coming back to life is the Jewish one. At the end of the Exodus Messiah, we shall all write. The singular reading of one who has resurrected, not so Jewish. <laughs> not so Jewish. Did Amichai agree? He must have. He worked closely with Hanavloch. Did he want the English translation to be more universal? 
did he want to call out to those others involved in the city? I don't know. You know why? Because I wasted my only question. <laughs> I always love to give this poem to my audience, not that it's mine, but I sort of feel it's mine. Because it allows you from the very beginning that which we need for the conversation. Ease with this text and ease to read it again in your own way. Being committed and yet being critical. Knowing that you are an Israeli, not disconnecting from the diaspora point of view. Pretty rich, huh? For a first point to start with. Any questions, comments on this one before we turn the page? He wrote that book about the shepherd who's looking for his son. Yeah, the same book, but I thought that yesterday in the morning. Yeah, this, this. An Arab shepherd is looking for a goat, yeah. Yes. I know. He wrote many, I cannot address all of them. We are just doing one, Amichai. But thank you for your comment. Yes, sir. Hannah Bloch from Berkeley, California. Okay, the biggest. There are two Hannahs, Compass and Bloch, they normally used to get to work together and they work with Amichai. Yeah, any more? Yes, ma'am. Um, have you seen my sheep? Have you seen my sheep? It reminds me of Psalm 21. We already had a reminder for earlier, and now we have another. Amichai is totally fluent in text. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Bye -bye. Just yeah. this idea that they keep to and this idea of, the of, of just of expectation instead of the dachan. I just wonder if there's a parallel there between a door that's open, ready for possibility, people waiting, not resurrected yet, to come to the Kriya. But it could be the past already in Hebrew, so if we were doing this in Hebrew, we will have to explore does he already see Kamul Kriya as the Zionist effort that we have already risen. Is this like an out-and-out -out cook poem? What I cook poem? It could be, right that way. But for that we need anyway. That's why we're not going there today. I could spend hours on this one. But I will not because I want you to turn the page to the next one. By the poetess Rachel Rachel from the book of Genesis did have a last name. It was Blumstein. But at the time she was so famous and so well known in the country that one would not mention the last name. Rochel was enough. If I wanted to make a contemporary equation, I would say Madonna, but do I really want to compare? No. I do not. But you get it, okay? Rochel is a very clear voice of the early waves of Zionist immigration, the Aliyot, mainly the second and the third one. She comes with the second Aliyah and will become a member of the first kibbutz ever, which is created in the year 1909, which is a very important year in the history of Zionism. If you really want to go to the core of modern Zionism, the practical one in Israel, Israel, then you go to the year 1909, which we managed to create in one year. The first kibbutz, the first armed force, Hashomer, and Tel Aviv. Like, can there be anything more Israeli than the combination of kibbutz, armed force, and Tel Aviv? I'd like to know about that one. Okay? Can you can you can you can you you can 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 you can
astronomy. Unfortunately, she's just about to finish when World War I erupts in 1914 and she cannot go back. She goes back to her hometown of Stowe and spends time there in Jewish orphanage taking care of orphans of the communist revolution and the horrible stuff that happened there. And she would contract tuberculosis, which is uncurable at the time. She is the first one to be on the first boat that can come back to El Israel in 1919 after World War I. One is the Oslan, like it's the equivalent of the Israeli Mayflower. I don't know how many people say that they had parents and relatives on the Oslan. Probably would have drowned if everything was true. But anyway, Rochel is on that one. The Oslan is the first boat of the third aliyah. So by virtue of that, Rochel is both a second aliyah and the third aliyah immigrant. That's weird, but this is what she is. She goes back to the kibbutz. Unfortunately, they cannot keep her because by that time they have babies and children and it's too dangerous. She will be sent away. She'll spend some time in Yerushalayim and Tel Aviv and end up dying at barely age 40 in Gedera in 1930. Okay? Her poetry is the true voice of commitment to Yerushalayim. It is in all Israeli school readers. Most of it was set to music. And we sing Rochelle's poetry, mainly, but not only. We're going to study All My Land, but there is an earlier one called To My Land, which we are not studying, in which is totally committed. Like, what have I done for you, my country? Not enough. I barely planted one tree. I barely passed with my bare feet.
and the American immigrants who will make sure that in the German colony you have the only butcher in Israel that can dress a turkey for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I never did it because you know I'm a Salvador Hungarian. We do gulash, but <laughs> but, but you know, guys, the kids when they make aliyah they do Thanksgiving, so you know they have to recreate little America. And suddenly, the, our unique aliyah, our unique commitment to the Chavikalim. All immigrants in all the world feel the same. It's an immigrant story. It's an immigrant society. Sometimes we miss home, even if it was a pogrom land. I know that I'm a daughter of a survivor from Hungary who never let the smoke of Auschwitz, if you wish, cover her memories of an early childhood in Budapest that was beautiful and gave me the love of that culture and the language, which allowed me, when the communist regime fell, to be involved in the recreation of Jewish education in Hungary. You, know, you never know what the longing will do. We did dwell for me. Ready for the next jump, or a comment, or a question? Yes, ma'am. you 
that he when in the year 1948 in Baghdad, Iraq, a Jewish father is celebrating the happy occasion of two healthy twin boys born to him, and he calls one of the Balfour and the other herself. <laughs> in Iraq. What does that tell you about this man? He's a Zionist. He's a Zionist, you know? And the house was what happened to the kids in school with these names, you know, like Balfour. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what your parents will do yeah. anyway. The Chakak family makes Aliyah with the majority of the Iraq Jewry in the very early 50s. The welcoming Israeli committee is not that kind. They are all descendants of those Chalitzim. They are all dressed, you know, in shorts and khaki and whatever, and these traditional Jews come in whatever year they come, and they are sprayed in DDT, and they are looked down upon. Barbara and Herzog couldn't remember, they are too young. So I have to assume that for this poem to be created and published in the mid-80s, when Balfour Chakak and his brother are already 40, and have their poetic voice strong and clear, the content must have come down in the family lore. They couldn't remember it. They must have heard it. Okay? Let's read it. My grandfather's priestly garments were transparent. His mother embroidered the hem of his blue robe with beautiful gold bands. She took pleasure etching his name in letters of silver, pure light. My grandfather, Morat Benofael Chakak. So guys, I need for you to know that in my family, I know stuff about grandpa. I also know stuff about his mother and how she used to do these beautiful embroidery dresses. Can you see the man getting out of the airplane in those embroidered, beautiful silk garments, and how the Jewish agency officials are treating him just like that. Like, it's poem or what? Is he a woman or what? But also I'd like you to note the stress on the grandfather's name, Mohamed. My grandfather, he had a decent name. Not a funny one like mine. True Iraqi Jew, Murad Ben Rafael Chakak. Dad, pay attention. This is what people are calling our family. Like Abraham from Ur, my grandfather came up. Allah, Medaliyah. Hello? My grandfather's Zionism was not based on Alp Neuland, thank you very much. Neither on the Declaration. Daddy, grandfather's Zionism was based on a story slightly earlier, like Bereshit, like Lech Lecha. Why are you that enthusiastic about your new discovery that we had Zionism in the family for way before? Based on Torah. He came from the same country, for the same land, at the same manner. And the Hebrew, I, I really need to do that for those who speak Hebrew. 
and Pio Todibor. Can we spend an hour on that, on the meaning of the word Makom, which means the divine as well as the place? And the Dibur, which is the word, the expressed word, the truth. Okay? And Baruch Hakkad can carry that in the Ibrit. English, unfortunately, not. He came to the same homeland. No longer did he have his gorgeous robe. His supremacy was gone. His face shone with grief. The silver was tarnished and the gold butchered. Mishchat was a tough and Mishchat was a tet. Okay, the Hebrew has the same sounding word for butchered and tarnished. Mishchat and Mishchat. My grandfather was a peddler in the market selling his treasures, tattered clothing, second-rate merchandise, slow of speech, forsaken profit. So if he was equated to Abraham a few lines ago, now where are we going? To Moshe. Never could learn the language really. Was always reduced to that limited language of a man moving to a new country at an old age. My grandfather was a sorrowful king. Who knows? He was born in silk and garments, rich embroidery and fine raiment, but when he was exiled to the land, what? When he was exiled to the land, where was homeland? Iraq, Baghdad. Where is exile? Your heart could break. Your heart could break. His clothes were spoiled and his splendor ruined. When he died, they draped him in his shroud, like his splendid robe. The talit he received from his father and his inheritance was etched with the blue letters of holiness. And along the length of the talit, I thought I could see beautiful band of gold, pure light. Sabashili. Murad ben Rafael Chakak, my grandfather, Murad ben Rafael Chakak. Now listen carefully. What is Balfour Chakak saying about the only chance for the generation, whole generation of immigrants to unite with the land? When they die. Can you turn all the way back up here? Sure. Yeah. A whole circular form, classical literary structure. But we are not doing that literature because some people hate it. <laughs> and they committed to them to make it different tonight. By the time I discovered this poem, which was in the 90s, I need for you to have a good happy ending. But Fuchakak was already the chair of the Union of Israeli Poets and Writers. So he totally made mainstream. And he still does today. Beautiful poetry, very little of which is translated into English. Very little. <coughs> we are sort of. How long can I still go?
Like complaining like that or like what like that? Well, if you want to So the story of the Exodus is repeated. There is a generation that will have to die before their children and grandchildren can make it in the new land. Yeah? Is that what you, you were suggesting? I thought you were referring to those immigrants always complaining. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Okay. All right. Any more comments or questions on this one? All right. We are going to move to page number five and to read one chapter from the first book that was written by Ephraim Kishon, born as Kishon Ferenc in Budapest, Hungary. Kishon Ferenc, of course, was before Hoffman, but Hoffman was a too Jewish-German name, and therefore he wanted to make it Hungarian, so he called himself Kishon. But when you came to Israel, Kishon was too Hungarian. <laughs> And you couldn't be parents, so he said, Kishon, Kishon will do. Like immigrants coming to this country, looking around at Alex Island and say, Hudson. Kishon is a river. Parents, a flying will do. Okay. Kishon was a Holocaust survivor from Hungary who was prior to the Holocaust already a published author in Budapest, in Hungary. Come to the country publishes the first book and the only one book he had written in Hungarian to be translated by a victim of Italy, a Hungarian writer who came to Israel about two decades before Kishon. After that, everything in Hebrew. His ability to own the Hebrew language is unprecedented and I would dare to say not repeated since. He reaches the level in which he creates words in modern Hebrew. Okay. In his first book, that was translated by Victor Omeniri, I wish I could give you a true translation to English of the name of the book in Hebrew. Only for Israelis. Excuse us. Passed with the entrance to the center with 
clearly anti-Zionist slide. So first of all, we are mocking this Hungarian custom to change name every generation. And you will continue to do that. By the way, my name Kovazin used to be Kurashi before that, and the Kurashi was Haidushka, and every name change had a political or whatever reason. So I totally, and also to call a Jew Athena, which is a common Hungarian name, and I actually know a Jewish guy in Budapest who is called that. I mean, the humor of some parents. Anyway. God of the illegal immigrants. And Chardash, formerly Cohen Chardash and Hungarian. Quite May the Slovak tormentors of illegal immigrants not find me. Jews of the world, save me. I do not care if I get to the Holy Land of Palestine in a wash This is what they are running away from communist hunger after the Holocaust, right? At, the mo at that moment, the Slovak news vendor let out a loud yell in his mother tongue. Chardash Kovrim shook over. He lowered himself to the level of his partner in escape on the Lord's trunk and rudely gave up even his wash in the Holy Land. I don't mind if I get there naked in case you didn't get it. Attila Chaim Chardashkovin sat in the bus holding on with his fingernails to the shoulder of his wife's coat. The vehicle bounded along, bumping violently through the pitch black night on a hardly discernible Austrian track towards the border. If, if I make it safely to Salzburg, it could be with the help of God, blessed will be the Jews of Palestine and its merciful government. From this day on, I forswear all the pleasures of this world. If I reach our motherland, I swear, this is what he said, motherland, even if I am barely alive, I will donate 10,000 shillings for the restoration of the Western world. And I will also contribute, wait, his wife is about as usual. I think we are already crossed the border. Never mind the five Chardash, I'm going to keep my vow. 100 shillings for you. If there is anybody here who has met five Chardash of Hillel in his life, the person who will commit to anything when they are in danger, and when the danger slides away, memories of her Chardash, or Kogan for short, sat in the railway carriage making himself as simple as possible. His passport had erroneously been marked instead of Dr. Moishe, whatever you read this, <laughs> with the name Gisela Zweig Budapest. Double and thumb humor. Gisela is a woman's name, of course, and Zweig is the name of a liquor. Thank <laughs> you. 
need to have a little bit of that before we are ready to go. This is from A Tale of Love and Darkness, the book that was published in the year 2000 exactly, and was made into a movie uh, just recently by Natalie Fong. Okay? We are reading just the opening, and if you ever learned anything about literature, you will know that the first page of a novel is it. That's the story in a nutshell. So listen to him. Biographical a book as Oz had ever written so far. I was born and raised in a very small ground floor apartment, low ceiling, some 30 square meters. That's about 300 square feet, you told me today. That's why I asked you, right? Okay. I know. Gormish, nothing. My parents slept on a pull-out sofa that almost entirely filled their room. When they opened it up at night, early in the morning, they firmly thrust the sofa back, piling the bedcloth into the darkness of the underneath door, turning over the mattress, closing, fastening securely, spreading a light gray cover over all, scattering several Easter-style embroidery cushions, eradicating every trace of their night sleep. Because there are no injuries. At night you have intimacy and dreams, you may weep. In the morning nobody needs to know in Elsie's way. Push everything underneath, cover it nicely, have some oriental cushions on top, and everybody will know that you are okay. Huh? In this way, the room serves the bedroom, work room, library, dining room, and guests. My little British room was opposite. A large belly clothed closet took up half of its space. A dark, narrow, low passageway, slightly twisted, similar to a tunnel used by escapees from jail, connected the tiny kitchen and bathroom to these two small rooms. A weak light imprisoned in an iron cage spread over the passageway, even during the daylight hours. A cloudy, so if you think that arriving to Israel is automatically freedom and light and sunshine, think again. When you are a new immigrant in the early years of the state, it could be miserable. It wasn't a liberating experience. It was a bad experience. I'm looking at the clock at night and I'm asking you to go to the bottom of page seven where we start the last paragraph. The two rooms, the tiny hutch of the kitchen, the bathroom, and especially the passageway between were dark. Our entire house was filled with books. My father could read 16 or 17 languages and speak 11, all with a Russian accent. <laughs> My mother spoke four or five languages and could read seven or eight. They talked to each other in Russian or Polish when they did not want me to understand. Most of the time they did not want me to understand. <laughs> Mother slipped once, at once, saying Italian and Hebrew instead of using a foreign language, and my father reprimanded her door in Russian. Shut it, cowboy, the kid is listening. From cultural consideration, most of the book were read, we read were in German and in English. Although I'm sure that at night they 
trained in Yiddish, but they taught me only Hebrew. Perhaps they feared that the knowledge of other languages would expose me to the temptations of fabulous, lethal Europe. They wanted to be Europeans. They mastered all the languages. They believed that if you just spoke the languages and studied in their universities that trust like them, they will accept you. And it was a false temptation. And the only way to keep your child from falling into that pitfall, don't let him know languages. Give him only Ivorit. That way he is safe. In my parents' system of values, the further west you went, the more cultured you became. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were dear to their Russian souls, and yet I sense that they regarded Germany, in spite of Hitler, as more cultured than Russia and Poland. And France, more even than Germany, in their eyes. England even translated France. As for America, they were not quite sure. After all, they shot Indians over there, they robbed mail trains, pan for gold, and chased women. <laughs> Thank you, Hollywood. <laughs> for them, Europe was the forbidden promised land, an enchanted place of bell towers and squares paved in all flagstones, tram cars, bridges, churches, spires, distant villages, healing springs, forests, snow, and meadow. Can you see this reverse longing to the forbidden? He never saw this in his childhood. But they were talking. They were talking in other languages. But they were missing. The words cottage, meadow, goose girl fascinated and moved me throughout my childhood. They were redolent of a real and tranquil world, far from the dusty tea roofs, junk and thorn-covered lots, and hard slopes of Jerusalem. Is that a very nice description of Yerushalayim? No. Is it an honest one? Suffocating in the white hot heel of summer. All I had to do was whisper, meadow, and I could hear the lowing of cows, the tinkle of the tiny bells around their necks, the bubbling streams. With closed eyes, I gazed at the beautiful goose girl. She was so sexy. She brought tears to my eyes, even though I was not yet fully aware. <laughs> Eighty years after Rachel's poem, Eighty years after all my life, and the lingering nostalgia of forbidden is still lingering in our culture. It's very complicated to establish a connection to the land of Israel. Thank you very much. I'll take questions and comments if you have them. Yes, sir. When was it written? Yes. 2000. In Hebrew, a translation follows the original very quickly. So I'm not sure 
about the day of the translate, uh, publication, but the Hebrew is 2000. Yes. Who are the young contemporary Israeli writers we should know about? Oh, many. I love Shimon Adaf very, very much. Uh, of course, Gal Kelet is like not that young anymore. Uh, lots of women writers, lots of poetry written in Israel nowadays. Because I've heard that it's kind of being less valued um, 
both opinions will be generalizations or classical rabbinical answer. It depends <laughs> who you're talking to, what you're listening to. We pretty much listen to our writers. We pretty much can be upset and angry of them. Should the writer express a political opinion, like David Crossman just recently, or somebody else, there will be a lot of talk back and feedback and whatever, whatever. So yes, the voice is heard. Modern young writers are heard. They have their own uh, circle. Do you know, those of you who deal with literature, what the expression aus poetica means? It's like when poetry is only about art, right? Aus poetica. Do you know what Israeli, the word aus, not in aleph, but in ayin, means? It's like a derogatory expression about a Mizrahi or a Sephardi man. Chacha would be good, but it's us now, which is actually an Arabic word for a pit. All right? So they created a site, a poetry site, called Ars Poetica with an eye. Like, this is our voice. Take it or leave it. Listen up to us. So, as a matter of fact, I would say it's not less strong. Depends where you look. Yes, can I have some more? Yes, sir. I'd like to recommend that you are interested in this immigration. My father's paradise. If you, you did you read it? My father's paradise. I'm afraid I didn't. Could you give them the details because I'm not it's aware. It's about Kurdish Iraqis immigration to Israel, the story of their life in Iraq, in their communities and how they were accepted in Israel. Or not so accepted. Not accepted, and they had a tough life until the second generation. It's an amazing book. Yeah, also Elia Mir, Elia Ariel Sabah, Ariel Sabah is the author, Ariel Sabah. Right, Sabah. Elia Mir, how do you call it? Michael Kapot, I think the translation is Kingdom. Beautiful story of, of uh, Iraqi immigration. Sami uh, Mikhail, well, plenty, and a lot of it was translation, but thank you for your commendation. I know it's scapegoat. Hmm? Scapegoat, I know. Elia Mir. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Scapegoat. Anybody else? Well, just a little thing. Yeah. Poetic means the art of poetry. Mm -hmm. The ingrown thing is art for art's sake. Yeah. Where it's not shared. I know. But they're playing on the word. They're playing on it, but they're opening it the same way. Totally. So it's like a double contradiction. Thank you for that remark, man. I think we'll close it here. Thank you very much, everyone.